Let us pray. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever had the opportunity to um, watch the sun come up? Um, I know some, some of you actually leave for work before the sun comes up. What I'm thinking more here is that you were actually out before the sun came up and you're, and you're recognizing how it's getting lighter and what have you. You, you, you might look back to the uh, west and see that it's, the sky is very dark. You look back to the east and you're starting to see uh, things to brighten up. And then a few minutes pass by and you're starting to see the glimmers of light and the colors appear. Everything around you that was in darkness turns to a strange glow and then uh, it becomes daylight. Well, Israel had been sitting in darkness for centuries at this point and the light is just about to dawn in the coming of Jesus. Zechariah has been struck mute for the last nine months as a result of his unbelief. All of his priestly experience and the time of, of, uh, that he's had with all those scriptures are coming into play during this prophecy. So his, his tongue is finally loosed and he is prophesying before the Lord. This is known as Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's song, um, <clears throat> the Benedictus. For the, if, you, if you're reading in a, an Anglican prayer book or on the... Um, uh, whatever that is, the uh, Mission of St. Clair app, which takes you through the prayer book readings, you will notice this being a familiar passage at this time, because every day when you read, you're re- actually reading this passage at this, at, at this uh, season of the church. I find it, whatever our other readings are, I find this reading always helpful because you're revisiting God's faithfulness and how he's delivered time and time again. Um. <clears throat> Zechariah in this, in this song is moving from in, increasing gratitude to increasing gratitude. He just continues to get more thankful. And I think this would have had to be a, uh, a particularly special time where the Lord comes on him and those words are coming from him. And so he's, he's uh, remembering ultimately God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Uh, he does that through a line of David, then to Abraham, and then a prophecy about his son, John, John the Baptist, and, um, and then the proclamation that the light is dawning upon us. So that's how, that's how we'll break this down. <clears throat> but uh, our passage today teaches us then, as we remember God's faithfulness to redeem his people, we will praise him with gratitude. So the first uh, couple verses we're going to look at 68 through 70, uh, this is, uh, is Zechariah giving praise for the promise kept or fulfilled to David. And so in 68 it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. So the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant, as some refer to it, 
was God keeping his promise. It was very, this is a simple covenant that God was keeping his promise to David to have one of his offspring establish his throne forever. Now, it's interesting that as Zechariah is saying these words, and, and, and if he's prophesying, remember, in the role of a prophet, he's speaking the words of God. And, 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 the, and those, those wor- the words of God then are true. And if you turned out to be a false prophet, you know, they would stone you. So it's incumbent upon the, the prophet to actually speak what he's hearing from the Lord. It's not, uh, it's, it's not take what you want and you know, deliver, deliver what you want and throw the rest away. That's not, not how it works. So <clears throat> David had been promised... Um, this a, a son, somebody from his line, to reign over his house forever. And it is interesting that Zechariah, in using these words, where he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, they're, they're the same words that David used when he installed Solomon, his son, to reign in his place as, the, uh, as a physical king in the kingdom. And so now... There's this glory given to God from, from days of old when Solomon was installed. Now there's the same glory given to God as this final son is, is installed and recognized. And it's through these words that Zechariah is saying that this is happening. So both the first son and the ultimate son were celebrated with the same praise to God. 69 says, and, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And a horn here refers to an animal's horn, such as maybe an ox or a buffalo, that kind of thing. Something, something big uh, and powerful. And as they, as they you, you've, you've seen certainly the cartoons and what have you, as they start uh, pawing the, the ground and lowering their head, they're going to do something with that big horn, perhaps. And they're going to use that horn for self-defense. They're going to um, protect themselves. And it, it, so there's this thing of power with it, but there's also this thing of beauty with it. Um, you know, being good West Virginians, we know that these that deer antlers must be beautiful because you can go in lots of people's homes and see heads with antlers, horns on the, on the walls. But the ox was also a symbol of the sacrifice, which points to Jesus. So that, you know, they would they would uh, be offering ox uh, cattle as uh, sacrifices to the Lord. And so it was in the shedding of blood um, of the ox, which points to the shedding of Jesus' blood for the propitiation of our sins, satisfying the wrath of God. So the horn brings a, a sign of beauty, but also of power and might. One and a tool for vengeance, even, and so the horn of uh, of, of this 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 coming horn is uh, bringing redemption and deliverance, and the power of this horn now saves to the uttermost. No matter what your past is, no matter how heinous the sin, no matter who you've betrayed, maybe no matter who you've stolen from. Um, it doesn't even matter who you may have murdered. This horn is powerful enough to save you completely and delivers you from your enemies, from your sin, as you rest in him. 
in 72, um, Zechariah praises God for the promise he kept to Abraham. 72 says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. So this promise to David, and it's interesting, he starts with the Davidic covenant. So he starts with David, but that promise didn't come out of the blue. That promise is embedded in an overarching story, an overarching promise, an overarching covenant that was made with Abraham. And which the, the, the covenant with Abraham um, is a beautiful covenant. And there are multiple places, even when Abraham was called. So Abraham shows up in chapter 12 of Genesis. At the very few verses in the very beginning of chapter 12, Abraham is called. And in, when he is called, he is promised to be a blessing to the nations. That he will have offspring. And that's that, it's the weird scene where the Lord's calling him and telling him to go. And he goes, and he doesn't even know where he's going. But even in then, he's promised, God promised him, to bless him. So then we get to Genesis 15, and there becomes a um, covenant ceremony, which is a strange, it's a strange scene. At this time, Abraham's old and he's childless, and as the, as the 15 starts out, God has promised him that ye will have a son. It's not this, it's not this Ishmael, it's not this one that y'all have, have used your own plans. I've got a plan for you, and you will have your own son. And so with that, Abraham believes him, and then in 15.6, it says that he believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So, it's by faith that Abraham was saved. And from that point forward, how, uh, which is true prior to Abraham as well, and we could talk about some of those, but Abraham forward, it's by faith that somebody is saved, we, we're, and Paul goes into this in uh, Romans 4, discussing that we are saved the same way that Abraham was saved, and it's by faith. And because he believed, it's accounted to him as righteousness, because it's this, that legal term, which we have been justified, and we are counted as righteous before the Lord. And for that, we say, praise God. So, we're in this scene of, of him believing, and then in order to ratify the covenant, there, there needed to be a ceremony, and this was a typical thing. But in that weird passage, he asks Abraham, we didn't ask him, he tells him, he tells him to go and get these animals and cut them in two. And so he, he lays them out, and then the birds come, and he shoes the birds away. And then God himself passes through those pieces of the animal, animals. And a, 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 the, the way we typically think of a covenant, and we, we a lot of times think as a, simply a promise or a contract, and I, uh, I don't think that's a complete enough understanding because the character behind the uh, parties are very much involved here. And so when God says he's going to do something, well, okay, he's probably just going to do that. And this is what we're seeing, this fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. But he required nothing of Abraham. It was all on his own that he said, because you believe, then here's our treaty uh, covenant c- ceremony. And God passes through the pieces in the form of a flaming pot. And what he's saying in that ceremony is, may it be done to me as it was these animals, if I don't keep my word. And in every covenant, there's a, the, the, the covenants are cut. There's a, there's a, a form of, 
Uh, it's a bond in blood, uh, sovereignly administrated is what a covenant is. And so typically you, you, you've got the greater party, the lesser party, and the lesser party is going to commit to something, maybe by some form of bloodshedding and saying, in effect, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, you know, may it be done to me as it has been this animal or whatever. But in this case, the weird thing about this is God himself is doing this. Then you fast forward and after that, which as if that's not enough, then God tests Abraham with um, telling him this son, which is by this time has been fulfilled. By the time we get to Genesis 22, the promise to Abraham and Sarah has been fulfilled. They have the son. They have their one and only true son, which is Isaac. And the Lord tells Abraham to take him up and sacrifice him. And I think there's so much that goes on in that story that we certainly can't do it justice in just bringing it up, but that's what we're doing. And, it, and, it, and there's something there that his recognition, you know, he, you know, he knew that he would not have had Isaac if it were not for the Lord. He already didn't believe the Lord. Sarah already didn't believe the Lord. They'd already instituted their own plan. And they'd been corrected on that. And the, <coughs> and the Lord says, I'm going to give you a son. And that's when he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he knows if it weren't for the Lord, they would have no son. So if the Lord is going to tell him to take his son and sacrifice him, this thing we say when we bring our, our offerings to the, to, the, to the table, we say all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. How tightly do you hold on to anything you actually have if you really recognize that all you have has been given to you by the Lord? And even in quoting Scripture, we're not, saying, we're, not, we're not just saying liturgy. We're quoting Scripture. And as we're quoting God's Word, it's, it's teaching us, embedding in us, that I, I don't possess anything. The Lord owns it all. So to give back to the Lord, I will do. And so that's the kind of obedience that uh, Abraham had when he came to this task of God's challenging him. Now, what, were the, what was all the purpose and all that and all that? I, I don't know. And we'll have to, we, we've studied that before, and I don't have any better answers today. But I think those are really key points. And then, then because of Abraham's obedience, God declares again that he, God, is going to fulfill this promise with no condition, again, on Abraham. And in 22, 16 through 18, Genesis 22, 16 through 18, it says, by myself, I have sworn, or, you know, some translation might say, I, I myself, it's, it's, we're recognizing that this is God and God alone has sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Beautiful, a beautiful passage. And so, in the calling of Abraham, there was this promise to Abraham made in the very calling. Then he shows his faith, and then it's ratified. That same promise is made again. And there's a... a, uh, the ratification ceremony. And then you go forward and he is tested. And because he believes still God, he's, he's not only counted as righteous, he's, he is righteous. He is acting in favor with what God's design is. 
And so with that, the Lord verifies and swears unto himself that he will fulfill the promise which was already made to him. God confirms this promise in Genesis 22, and then Zechariah understands the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And he recognizes that the prophets of old have talked about this and have foretold of the coming of this Christ. And in verse 74, it says the the freedom that Christ will bring will deliver us from our enemies and free us to serve him without fear. Then it goes into 75, and in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you you think of Mary and her response. So Mary responded to God and said, I am your servant. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There's, There's this understanding that he is he his ways are higher than our ways, and I submit to your will. And there's a freedom, so that as opposed to us worrying about what we're missing out, we're finding fulfillment in operating as we had been designed for, because we come to Him and He lives inside of us. So Christ liberates us from sin to serve Him with joy, and so that should be kind of the characteristic of a Christian. It should be known. We should be known as servants of joy. So we should serve and serve gladly, and we should do that with a very grateful heart. Then he makes us, he, he makes us righteous, and he makes us holy. So we are set apart so that we might serve him with this joyful obedience. So there's the, there are these objective truths that says this is what God is doing in those who are his. And so this, because if we're going to believe God's word, this should give us that assurance of salvation. We, should, we, we shouldn't have to doubt whether or not we are saved. If we have been drawn to the Lord, he has made us righteous. And, and frequently, we want to evaluate our own righteousness, righteousness, or particularly that of our neighbor, and wonder whether or not we're saved, wonder whether or not they're saved. Well, that's just simply not our job. And our job is to understand that he has already done that. He has made us righteous. The next thing we're looking at is uh, praise for John. And it, at times where, if, if there have been special moments where you've prayed over uh, a special young person to you, as, over your child, um, you know, and I'm a crybaby, so I, this gets to me. I think this is a very emotional, this, would have been, this whole thing would have been emotionally charged as um, these first words that... Zechariah is getting to say, and then he comes and he's recognizing, and this is no pride in him. These are the words of the Lord that the Lord is giving him, and that's what he's saying. And he says, and you, child, I'm in 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Well, this... To, to, for him to recognize what's happening with his son, this baby, and then prophesy over him, he, this had to be a humbling state for Zechariah. He may have led in synagogue, he may have done a lot of things on behalf of the Lord, and it, 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 with, with the, words, the word of the Lord, uh, with caring for the Lord's people. But this is particularly a uh, change for Zechariah because of when he, the only reason he was mute is because he didn't believe. So he's come from unbelief 
And, it, and of course, he's had a while to get used to this. And there have been other instances where the visitation of Mary and Elizabeth and so on. So there's, there's this thing where the Lord has shown him this truth. Now the Lord is speaking the truth through him. And assuming, I assume he would have been aware of what he was saying, and it would have just had to have been very humbling, I would think. A beautiful story as he tells and prophesies to John, but then all those in the hearing, of John's significant role in this beautiful grand story of redemption. So John's going to be a prophet, and he's called the prophet of the Most High. And he will go before the Lord to to, uh, prepare his way. And the scriptures had foretold that somebody was going to do that. This John is that prophet, and he will give knowledge. And this is not head knowledge. This is, this is something significant. This is not something that people are going to checkbox ascribe to. This is a thing where that truth gets down into their heart, and they know that they are in need of salvation because they are aware of their sin. They know they need forgiveness in Christ alone. And in doing so, as they recognize that, as they act upon it, as they follow him in that whole series, they become children of Abraham. So this, it's through John's proclamation and preparation for Jesus and then the message of Jesus and through Jesus' death on the cross that those who are hearing him and as we hear and respond, we become children of Abraham. So the promise continues to be fulfilled. So then we, uh, in 78, we look at praise for the rising of the sun. It says, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So part of Zechariah's song, as I've said, is this recalling of the history of God's plan of redemption, of, of how he's fulfilled those promises. Um, and Israel, at this point, had been sitting in darkness for many, many years. There's, there's, not, even, there's not been a, a prophet speaking. So this is why it, you would recognize it's darkness, because the word of the Lord had not come to the people. And yet, it's here. And it's pointing to that this is like the looking, looking back to the, uh, what, the west, and you're seeing the darkness, you're looking back to the east, and you're starting to see the glimmer of light, and this is the way the story is unfolding, that the, the light will soon be coming. And <clears throat> this, this, prior to this light, there's been this sense of hopelessness, helplessness, despair. Where do we go from here? When will the Lord save us? How long, O Lord? How long will, will it be before you keep your promises? Isaiah says in 9.2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the light is beginning to dawn, and this is what they're seeing. Malachi 4, 2 says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I don't know if, you've, if, if that does anything for you. When, when you have little calves that are just born and they're finding their legs, they finally get them and then there's all this kicking and playing and you don't really want your cattle to get all wound up because you don't want all that good fat to get off of them. <clears throat> so you've got to be careful how much you enjoy that, but it is a sight to see. And typically, as uh, Dad would manage things, you would see the calves being starting, starting to be born like February-ish. So it was still cold, but there were signs of spring, signs of new life. And then with you look out and start seeing the signs of new life and seeing those calves kick, it's like, okay, here's, here's this freedom and this light has come and it's setting, us, setting them free. Um, 
it, this this sunrise that term comes from the old English of day spring. So the day is springing forth. I found that to be interesting because we sing about the day spring from on high, and by the contextual clues of what we're singing, I get it. But I always I just thought that was a weird uh, a weird thing. And then and then in the Christian world, in our Christianese, there are a lot of things called day spring. Well, the which I, you're like, where does that come from? Well, it's the dawning of the light out of the darkness and the coming of Christ. So it's really kind of a significant term. And I thought that, I thought learning of that, I, th- I found that very helpful. John eight twelve says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, and, and that one's the, we're, we're familiar with that. But as the light has come into the world, then the darkness cannot overcome it. So John 1 says, so there's this understanding that the light has pierced the darkness and dispelled it. And that's, we're, we're still in this, at, at this stage in this grand story, we're still just on the verge of that. And, you know, if, if it's the beach thing, if out over the ocean you're starting to see the rising of the, of the sun, is where we are in the grand story. But then it says, because of the tender mercy of God, I think that is just beautiful. And because of the tender mercy of God, he sent his light into the darkness. And for us, then, the response is, well, have you seen the light? How have you responded to the light? How do you live in the light? Have you been redeemed and delivered from your enemies, as that horn of salvation is designed to do? Have you been set free to serve him in holiness? Have you been set free to serve him in righteousness? Do you believe his promises have been fulfilled, and therefore you have that sense of assurance we talked about. Do you doubt whether or not the Lord has truly saved you? Are there promises of his that need to be recounted, maybe day in, day out, at least for a period of time, so that those promises get into your heart? In the way our daily office, and that's I, I don't understand that word, but the daily office means our daily readings in the, out of that uh, Book of Common Prayer, and as they are set up and where we do do this, I think that's the intent and that's the purpose. It's reminding us of those truths. It's reminding us of God, God's word, telling us that God fulfilled those promises. So may we rest on his word and recognize that he fulfills his promises and therefore we can rest in him. So cling to the one who has promised, who was promised, and then experience his new birth in you this very season. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us pray.